Thanks, Joel, for reading uh, to us this evening from God's Word. Uh, good evening. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. It was great to see a few of you out at the uh, start line of the race uh, this morning. I just happened to see Andy Mears standing up on a, in prime position on a picnic bench outside the pub. And he turns to me and he goes, Matt, we should have church here. And I thought to myself, yes, we should. I'm ready to go. I should just stand up on the picnic table and preach the gospel to the, entire, the entirety of Helensburg because they're all out. But I didn't. And I don't know if it was because of fear or because of wisdom that I didn't. But instead, I'm here now. Uh, to preach to you. And I believe that asking questions is also a key to understanding. And so we use Slido.com as a means that you can ask questions, and I will uh, look at some of those after the sermon. Uh, As Steve said, we're actually taking a break from Judges, and for the next few weeks, I am going to preach from the book of Philippians. And the letter to the Philippians was written by Paul, who was imprisoned in a Roman jail. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. And over and over again, Paul writes about rejoicing. And he calls the Philippian church to rejoice with him. And he describes his situation as something that he rejoices in. Ultimately, what we will see in this letter as we walk through it in the coming weeks is how he is able to say such extraordinary things. And today in this passage, we actually get a glimpse of what is at the heart of Paul's desire for the Philippian church. Paul wants them to be confident in Christ in order that they would be motivated to continue in their faith so that they would become spiritually mature. And this first part of the letter to the Philippians begs us to ask these questions. Where does our confidence come from? And what foundation do we stand on when we try to make sense of what's going on in this world, both the good and the bad? And what place God has for us in it all. Maybe we also need to consider if we are tempted to add to the gospel in order to make the gospel work for us. Friends, our motives, our aspirations here and now are insignificant in comparison to the advance and splendor of the gospel. And this is the key to Paul's joy. From inside a Roman prison, Paul is filled with joy when he remembers the Philippian church. And he calls them to rejoice with him. And so I want to learn from what Paul says to this church in Philippi. Because I long to be part of a church like this church here in Philippi. And I want to see us loving each other with the affection of Christ Jesus and partnershiping with each other 
in proclamation of the gospel so that together we might rejoice in the confidence that the gospel brings despite feeling as though we might run or labor in vain. So why don't I pray for us to this end? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to learn from your word today that by it we might learn how to rejoice in every situation we face. May I be clear as I speak your word today and may it do its work transforming us to the likeness of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, on the 23rd of June, 2018, 12 boys and their soccer coach walked into a cave in Thailand. And what occurred over the next 17 days was an amazing rescue story. As they walked into the cave, it started raining. And as it started raining, the cave started filling with water. And as it did, it trapped their exit out. And I can remember, and probably you can remember, hearing this story on the news day after day. And I can remember thinking to myself that there was no hope for these boys until 10 days into the search when cave divers finally found the boys and they were alive. It was called a true miracle. And they started celebrating for a time until it was realized that there was no possible way to get these boys out of that cave. And it turns out these boys were trapped 1,600 meters inside this cave. Elite cave divers were the only ones who could actually reach these boys. And there was no other way out of the cave. But thankfully, an Australian hero came to the rescue. There just happened to be an Australian anethnetist who also was a cave diver, and his name was Richard Harris. Richard was contacted and asked if it was possible to sedate the boys and then dive them out. And his immediate response was, absolutely not. It is not possible. It cannot be done. But he offered to go over there, fly over there, and find another way out for these boys. Well, it turned out there was no other way out. And he was given the task of coming up with the method and the medicines required to sedate these boys. And in his own words, he says this, he remembers feeling like a used car salesman who was trying to sell an old bomb to, bomb to some unsuspecting person. He said he just felt like a liar. The night before the first attempt at pulling out these boys, he called his wife and he said to her, I don't think it'll work. I think they will drown under the anesthetic. One of his greatest concerns is that the anesthetic would not actually last the entire rescue. The boys were so far into the cave that the rescue was going to take longer to, than two hours. And so much of the cave was filled with water that at some point they were going to have to re-administer, re-inject the boys with more of the anesthetic. 
And so Richard had to teach these other divers how to top up the child with another injection. So his plan was to sedate them at the beginning, and then these other cave divers would dive them through and at some point pop up in the cavern and actually re-inject them. And Richard told these divers, stick it in their leg, through their wetsuit. It doesn't matter whether it hits a bone or not, just stick it in, nothing can possibly go wrong. (laughs) Like, think about it. After 17 days trapped in a cave, they were being drugged and then dragged through this cave that only professional cave divers can get through. And at some point, some random point, they were going to pop up and inject them. And he told them nothing could possibly go wrong. And after the rescue, he admitted that he was lying through his teeth. But he lied in order for those divers to have the confidence that they needed and the courage to go into that cave and to do the impossible. So the confidence these divers needed was actually based on a complete lie, on the word of a man who did not believe it could be done a man who was lying through his teeth. And he was surprised, as actually all of us were, that not one child died in the rescue. Now I ask you, where does your confidence lie? Where do you get the courage to face whatever comes your way? Because just like Richard Harris needed the divers to believe a lie, so too the world demands that we believe its lie. We are sold lie after lie by the world around us, and we are continually buying it, placing our confidence in the deceptiveness of this world. And here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul is confident, but his confidence is not based on a lie. It is not on empty promises. It is not based on some worldly attitude or what the world and those around him to believe, believe to be true. Rather, Paul's confidence is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the sovereign work of God in salvation. So the hero of Paul's rescue mission is a a man named Jesus Christ. The confidence that Paul is given by God through the completed work of Jesus Christ not only guarantees the outcome, but it makes sense of what we experience. And it also gives us meaning and purpose. Where the divers had no proof of an outcome, as Christians, our proof is what has already been achieved. And so as we look more closely at the passage today, what is unmistakable is how the gospel brings confidence to every Christian. And this confidence leads to spiritual maturity. The gospel is the central focus of Paul's love and joy for the Philippian church. And this is seen, first of all, in verse 5. 
Read with me, starting actually from verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Also, read in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then again in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in Paul's prayer, it is the Philippians' partnership in the gospel that leads to Paul's joy. Paul holds them in his heart because of their defense and confirmation of the gospel. And even in his imprisonment, this has served to advance the gospel. And notice that even though in these seemingly bleak circumstances, Paul finds himself um, personally finds himself advancing the gospel because everyone knows that he has been put there because of it. And the Lord uses this to give others the confidence they need so that they may speak the word without fear. Now I want to stop for a minute right here because if the gospel is what Paul speaks of, And it is life transforming. If it is the gospel that is going to mature us as Christians and give us the confidence that we need, then we better understand what this term, the gospel, means. What can happen so often in biblical or Christian faith phrases is that we lose its meaning. The words and phrases that we use, we can often use them to answer questions when we don't actually really know the answer. And I don't know if you've ever done any kids' ministry, but in kids' ministry, the answers are always either Jesus, God, or the Bible. And sometimes as adults, we just say they're Jesus, God, or the gospel. The gospel is oftentimes referred to as everything that is in the Bible, from obeying your parents to loving one another to caring for the outcast or even the way some of the judges act in the Old Testament. Now hear me correctly. All of the Bible is God-breathed and it is all useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But not all the Bible is the gospel. And you cannot replace the word, the Bible, with the gospel. The word, the gospel, simply means the good news. But when Paul uses this word, he does not 
use it as the good news of whatever we want it to be. For Paul, the good news, that is the gospel, is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And specifically, what Christ has done in his death and resurrection and ascension. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And there is an important difference between the gospel and what flows out genuinely from the gospel. And it is the gospel that changes these people here in this church in Philippi. And it is the gospel that transforms and matures every Christian believer. And in Philippians, Paul wants us to realize that as mature Christians, we are to proclaim it. We are to teach it. And we are also to outwork it in our lives in order that both ourselves and those around us might be transformed and renewed as we anticipate the coming day of Jesus Christ. The joy that Paul feels towards the Philippian church is because of the fact that they have taken hold of the gospel. They have partnership with Paul in the gospel. It is at the very center of every relationship they have, and it is their common goal as a church. Paul takes joy that the gospel has been at their very heart since their beginning. And so I would like to turn and read about the beginning of this church. Can you turn to, with me to Acts chapter 16? In Acts chapter 16, we have the record of how this church in Philippi began. Acts chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 11. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the, the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here we meet Lydia, a worshiper of God, whom Paul preached the gospel of Christ to. And the Lord opened her heart and she was baptized. Let's continue reading. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain and fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, 
These men are from the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to, pro, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Paul here commands an evil spirit to leave a slave girl. And he does it in the name of Jesus Christ. And this leads to his imprisonment. And if you skip down to verse 27, we'll keep reading. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so we see that the Philippian church is established with Lydia, a slave girl, and a jailer. Paul preaches to these three random people, and they believe. And these are the people who Paul rejoices about in the opening chapter of this letter, because they are still partnering with Paul in the gospel. He has witnessed from the very beginning of this church their growth and their maturity as they partner with him. It wasn't Paul who began a good work in them, but rather Paul proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, and the Lord opened their hearts. It was the Lord who began a good work in them, and it is the Lord who will bring it to completion on the day that he returns. God has guaranteed the outcome, and it is done so by the merits of his own son and his death on the cross. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we read in Philippians, turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This verse here defines the outlook of the Christian, and is the very thing that we have confidence in. When we say, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, we are putting confidence in God and his guarantee to us of the outcome, knowing that it is not done on the merits of anyone other than Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty that God has assured us that no other merits will suffice. There is no other name 
by which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. And so if you look around this room tonight and look at the people in this church and you think we are an unlikely bunch of people, you should rejoice just like Paul did because the church in Philippi testified to the effectiveness of the gospel and our church here today testifies to the effectiveness of the gospel. And so we must continually remind ourselves that God, in his power to save, doesn't care about race or status or achievements. God, in his, in his sovereignty, has not saved me because of who I am or what I have done. He has not saved me on the merits of how good or how close I got to becoming a Christian on my own. I am confident in Christ's work, not in myself, that he who began a good work in me would continue it and bring it through to the day of completion when he will return again. And this is what it means to be confident in the gospel. Now, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that there are types of people who become Christians and there are types of people who don't. I know I fall into this trap. There are people that when we meet them, we think to ourselves, that type of person is pretty close. They may become a Christian, while others we completely write off. Our judgment of such people prevents us from sharing the gospel with them. And that is disappointing. So to be a part of a church like this part, this church in Philippi, we too are called to proclaim the gospel to everyone we meet, regardless of who they are, regardless of whether or not we think they may or may not be the type of person who will accept it. And we are to proclaim the gospel together. Read with me verse 7. Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So partnering together in the defense and confirmation of the gospel is a must. And as we partner together, we share the common goal of proclaiming Jesus Christ. And while we do that, we have confidence because of the guarantee of God and his saving work. It is this guarantee that is sufficient for everyone, for the helpless, for the hopeless, for the undeserving people like me. And so we often assume that somebody else needs to do this work. And we fail to take up our obligation to partner together in the proclamation of the gospel. And so tonight, I want you to consider 
how are you or how will you partner with this church here and now in this place to ensure that the gospel is being proclaimed? Read with me, uh, starting from verse 8. Paul continues, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here, Paul picks up on this idea of excellence, striving to be pure and blameless. And so it's worth taking just a few minutes to look at why this is here. Paul is yearning for gospel faithfulness. He wants us to to pursue excellence through knowledge and discernment in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that we should pursue excellence as some kind of legalism or for our own gain. Paul reminds us that our assurance of salvation should not lead us to complacency. Our confidence increases as we see hard evidence of both our spiritual progress and the spiritual progress of those around us. And so it does not make us lazy, and it does not lead to complacency. Rather, Paul here wants us to know and understand more so that we can discern what is truly from God and what is biblical and what is right. What for? Well, he explains here that it is actually for the day of Jesus Christ, the day when Jesus will come again. And this is not in contradiction to verse 6, where we saw that our salvation is a work of God, because our free gift of new life motivates us to pursue excellence so that we do not continue to stumble or that we do not continue to struggle in knowing what we believe and what we don't believe. Knowledge helps us not to run and labor in vain. I don't know if you've ever had uh, this kind of discussion with people, people who want to know the boundaries of the Christian life, what they are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, where they are overstepping the mark when it comes to being a Christian. These people are actually asking the question, how worldly can I be and still call myself a Christian? Their aim seems to to be to do the bare minimum. If we are mature in our faith, united together in Christ, we are to desire what is excellent. When we have the mindset that he who began a good work in us will continue it through to the day of Jesus Christ, we should desire to know more in order to discern what is excellent, and we should aim to be pure and blameless for that day when he returns. Mature faith 
looks like desiring what is excellent so that the gospel goes forward. Read with me verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There are two groups of people here, and they are believers that are proclaiming Jesus Christ. The first group preaches out of envy and rivalry. And Paul doesn't actually go into much detail as to why they actually resent him. But we are told that they preach out of selfish ambition. They exalt themselves and their ministry over Paul's. And by doing so, they afflict Paul in his imprisonment. But Paul says, what then? Or so what? What does it matter? For Paul, it actually does matter why a person preaches the gospel. But in his spiritual maturity, he values one thing above all else, and that Christ is being proclaimed. Knowing Jesus is deeply personal for Paul. Proclaiming Jesus is deeply transformative for Paul. Because the gospel is being being proclaimed, he rejoices. And when the gospel is being proclaimed, he rejoices. And he calls us to rejoice in its proclamation. Friends, do not put your confidence in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I am sure of this one thing. If he has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion on the day that he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to yearn for each other with the affection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to want to know more, to strive in all discernment, so that we may approve what is excellent, so that our love may abound more and more. Fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, so that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, as we proclaim the gospel of your Son, without fear. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you a few minutes uh, to ask a question using slido.com.